Pop star Britney Spears is living the dream and doing what a lot of us wish we could right now, vacationing in Hawaii. She's also posting how she looks in a bikini on Instagram and is feuding with the paparazzi as they plead to give me more, just like it was 2007. This is a big deal for her because in 2008, Britney's freedom to live her life and spend her money as she wished was halted when her father gained legal control of her life and her career when she entered into a conservatorship agreement. But two months ago, a judge realized she was a slave to the agreement, that it was toxic, and finally hashtag freed Britney after 13 years. An estimated one and a half million other Americans are under court-regulated guardianships, and each state makes its own rules. Today, we discuss how it works in Massachusetts. From New England Public Media, this is And Another Thing. I'm Dara Kennedy. I'm Maya Schwader. Now, in most states, conservatorships are technically different than guardianships, and there are a lot of different types of guardianships. There's a lot of nuance and complications in these laws. To break this all down, we spoke with Robert Fleischner. He's an attorney from Northampton who's been working in mental disability law since the 70s. We asked him to start by briefly explaining what is a conservatorship. So in Massachusetts and Connecticut, Vermont, uh, we have two forms of legal action where another person takes control over a person's life. One's called the guardianship, and generally a guardianship is control over the person's life, not including their financial affairs. In Massachusetts, a conservatorship is limited to control over what's called the person's estate. That is their money, their real estate, and that sort of stuff. Is it at all common that a person who doesn't meet the legal definition of needing a guardianship nonetheless ends up in one? I think that a better way to look at it is that there are any number of people, large numbers of people who may meet the legal definition of guardianship, but don't need a guardianship because there are alternatives. There are other things that are less intrusive, less invasive, less controlling that could be utilized in terms of support for the person instead of taking away all of their rights, which is essentially what a complete guardianship does. What are some examples of those arrangements? There are uh, things like advanced directives that a person can write, which appoints another person to make healthcare decisions for them if they are incapable of making those decisions. Families can set up trust arrangements. There are various kinds of delegations of authority that can be signed. And most recently, there's something called supportive decision-making, uh, which is uh, being used increasingly around the world in which the person appoints a group of friends and family members to help them make decisions, not to make decisions for them, uh, but to help them make decisions. And supportive decision-making is recognized as a legal process in about, uh, some, in about a dozen states. Uh, there are also limited forms of guardianship where a guardian only gets a certain amount of authority. There are far too many full guardianships. How does one get out from under a guardianship if one is in a situation where there's been a person appointed their guardian and they didn't consent to it? Well, the statistics, to the extent that they exist at all, the American Bar Association did a pretty comprehensive study of what they called restoration of rights. And 
there's a very small percentage of guardianships for which the person has their rights restored. In other words, that they get out of guardianship. In Massachusetts, a person can petition the court at any time to be released from the guardianship. Without an attorney, that's not an easy thing to do. It doesn't happen very often. In your professional opinion, is the system working the way it's supposed to? Probably not. There are too many people under guardianship in Massachusetts. The last statistics I looked at for the number of guardianship filings, I think was in fiscal year 2020, there were 11,000 guardianship filings. That's a lot. And if most of those people never get discharged from guardianship, that means that there are probably hundreds of thousands of people in Massachusetts under guardianship. And in my view, for many of those people, if not the majority of them, guardianship is unnecessary. I think until guardianship is used only as a last resort and only for those people for whom there is no alternative that you can't say the system works. Bob Fleischner, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. It can be hard to fully understand what life is like for a person living under a guardian unless you've lived it yourself. And you may ask, why is this happening now? Well, it's not new. Back in 2016, the Americans Against Abusive Probate Guardianship filed a petition to President Barack Obama and then-FBI Director James Comey demanding a federal investigation and laws for guardianship. Years later, families continue to fight. Patricia Keene Martin is an elder law attorney and has spent her career working on both sides of guardianship case law. And another thing wanted to know if there are situations where this arrangement could actually be helpful and is there a typical reason why someone would end up under a conservatorship? I wouldn't say typical because there, you know, every single case has just a variety of facts, but there is sort of two pockets of uh, capacity cases. One is um, somebody where they have fluctuating capacity, you know, what happens presents a lot of time with young adults and bipolar or manic disorders, and they start their uh, journey under the protections and usually a commitment with their harm to self and harm to others that then morphs into some form of a guardianship. The other pocket is, is the elder community and diminished capacity individuals, dementia spectrum, and people who are slowly losing their cognitive abilities and have not a high likelihood of being able to regain them. Is there much of a difference between the court systems in Massachusetts versus other places in the country? What's the difference in Massachusetts? So Mass is under a uniform probate code. Um, so that allows sort of the shades of gray type of, uh, of situation. Um, some states just have you either have capacity or, or, or you don't. The difference is really not so much the law. It's how much capacity you need to have based on upon case law. The case law in different states is very different. You know, you can have capacity in one state and then the next state can determine you don't have sufficient capacity. It's a real system failure. You've said that most people who are under conservatorship tend to not want to be there. Is abuse prevalent? In my experience, it's not. Just like every system, there are failures. And there are often also families who are so thankful that these protections are in place. You know, there's a good number of respondents that couldn't survive without the protections, you know, particularly in the elder community. 
the families or maybe an individual that you've defended that wanted to be released from guardianship, what has been their main concern of why they feel like they don't need to be uh, have this oversight for the rest of their lives? There's two issues that come up a lot. It's often about the money, especially in the elder population and diminished situation. It's children fighting over who's controlling mom because they're worried that if you control mom, you're going to get the estate and you're going to get the money. And then the elder just gets exhausted by it and says, I don't want any of you controlling anything. I'm still here and I want to continue to control it. Patricia, I want to circle back to something. Our our understanding of what mental illness and what mental disability and physical disability for that matter is, has changed a lot in the past few decades. Has the law evolved with it? Uh, Good question. It tries. How about if I give you that type of answer? I mean, you know, law is made through cases and cases take a while to go through their system. These cases tend to be expedited based upon the crisis and also just the age often of the individual. I'll tell you this, in in Massachusetts, the court anyway is consistently engaged with, you know, Mass Guardianship Association, the Mass Guardianship Policy Institute, you know, various groups that have target this particular practice area so that they can stay on top of it. Sticking with the law and just following up that answer, under federal election law, um, there are only two groups that states may exclude from voting, felons and persons categorized in some way of having mental impairments. Does Massachusetts allow those under guardianship to vote? Um, Interesting question, because I just recently had a big voting battle on a limitations case that I had, and it was really sort of the first time that it it came up. So the answer is, if it is carved out as an exception, you have to be fairly incapacitated with really no ability to express yourself to lose the right to vote. Um, However, a full guardianship you do lose the right to vote. It has to be carved out in the decree itself. But the one desperate thing that everybody agrees on, no matter if you're, you know, you're inside, outside, or, or wherever, is that funding and the data is needed. Failure to collect the data allows people to speculate left and right. And so that really needs to be done. Patricia Keen-Martin, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Coming up an advocate that's been fighting for seniors and dependent adults ever since his own family battled the courts. This is And Another Thing. You're listening to a previous broadcast of And Another Thing. You're listening to And Another Thing. We're learning more about how guardianships and conservatorships like the one pop star Britney Spears was under for 13 years works closer to home as each state has its own rules. With Maya Schwader, I'm Dara Kennedy. Earlier in the show, we learned that there are no national standards for these legal restrictions on people controlling their finances or even how or when they plan to conceive a family. Partly inspired by the Britney Spears case, some federal lawmakers are proposing nationwide protections. The FREE Act, formerly and affectionately known as the Free Britney Act, would give the person under legal control 
the right to ask a court to replace their appointed guardian or conservator for any given reason. Rick Black is the executive director and co-founder of the Center for State Administration Reform, which backs the FREE Act. He explained why he considers those agreements so abusive. When a person is conscripted into a guardianship or conservatorship, that requires a court order. The way the equity court is designed, it really is there to serve the attorneys because they all feed off the estate as soon as that order is signed and works against the public in the American Bar Association and each state and county bar association has done a great job over the last 75 years of promoting this propaganda campaign that guardianships and trusts are good for when in fact those are profit centers for the bar that that help them make money and and the reason you want to stay away from it is once you're in it you don't get out the attorneys who haunt the halls of our local equity courts which are all county-based, they know how to effectively manipulate, communicate, massage a judge to continue to allow them to extract wealth from a vulnerable person who, at the point the order is signed, has no rights. It's interesting you say that because we just spoke earlier with an attorney who works in elder law who said that there are cases where people can get out from under the conservatorship if they have the proper counseling, if they have the proper representation, are these barriers? Is it just not very common that someone can get out from under the conservatorship? It's very uncommon. My biggest disappointment is the attorney that you spoke to is typical of all attorneys. They're going to defend the dysfunctional equity court system. They're going to defend all other attorneys at the expense of their client and other clients. And that's why I referenced the propaganda campaign, Maya, because they all know these atrocities occur. Yes, a few people get freed from guardianships and conservatorships, but it's a very, very few, and they don't get any of their money back. Rick, you have supported the passage of Guardianship Accountability Act, which, amongst a, a long list of things, requires accountability by states to report the assets assumed by the appointment of a guardianship. When we bring it closer to home, what are the trends that you have seen in our area that make you say Massachusetts needs to do better or Massachusetts is ahead of the game? Yeah, Massachusetts needs to do a lot better. We don't get many complaints out of Western Mass, lower population, although you have some wealth on the Western side, but the volume, the population, the money, in the Boston area, it is a recognized hotspot. And, and to drive home the point, the documentary Guardians Inc. that was produced by Netflix, two big law firms in Boston, 250 total attorneys, sued Netflix and Netflix pulled that piece off of their their library. You can't rent it, you can't buy it today. As a person who has spent plenty of time in Western Massachusetts, you were right here in Pittsfield, is there anything local lawmakers can do in Western Mass? Oh, absolutely. You know, th this is about court oversight. So your local judges there in Berkshire County, they can take steps tomorrow, today. Just make sure that as they open these proceedings for guardianships, they 
highlight the law and hold attorneys accountable who perjure and lie. When they catch them presenting false information, they should be filing bar complaints and having their bar license removed. The issue we have here is the judges often disregard the laws and they know that they can get away with it because there's absolutely no oversight. What's the situation in Connecticut, which is one of the richest states in America? Connecticut's unique. Uh, it's great that you brought that up, Dara. Um, they have a unique setup where local attorneys who uh, one day are an estate planning attorney, a trust attorney, a guardianship attorney. The next day, they're the judge that hears the guardianship cases. So there's very much across the state, uh, I scratch your back, you scratch mine setup that puts the, the public at risk. It's safe to say you're not a fan of guardianship and conservatorship arrangements. Have you ever seen an example of one where it was actually a good thing, where people are actually benefiting from being under this kind of protection? Absolutely, Maya. There's a place for guardianships. I'm a believer in guardianships. You know, there are certain people that have no ability to protect themselves, but it's a very limited reason when they should be implemented. And the American public needs to understand that 99% of the people under a guardianship could be fully protected. Rick Black is the executive director and founder of the Center for Estate Administration Reform. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Recognition of Black History Month begins next week, but aside from the one month that is set aside each year, some have used the ongoing Black Lives Matter movement as a way to educate their community and vocalize their personal experiences. Deirdre Cuffey Gray's Coming to Terms with Society story is featured in the Valley Voice Story Slammed and produced by New England Public Media and the Academy of Music Theater. So I'm thinking about buying a gun. Even though I'm a former U.S. history teacher, I never thought I'd be exercising my Second Amendment rights. But the truth of the matter is, I'm afraid of white people. Now, don't get me wrong. Some of my best friends are white. My wife is white. But it's angry white people that I'm afraid of, the kind with AK-47s. Recently, one of my nephews, Ellison, was in for auntie camp. And our, as we drove out of town, he asked me, Auntie Deidre, how come there's so many Black Lives Matter signs here and no black people? And I was stumped. All I could say is there are a lot of good white people here. Sometimes, uh, when you walk around, if you take a walk around my block, there are about 15 times more Black Lives Matter signs than there are black people. And it's me, I'm the black people. And, and that's okay. If you think about where I live, I live in a little spot that we call the compounds, lovingly. We decided not to call it the compound because compound sounds a little militant. It's four lesbian couples, three houses, eight cats, I did say lesbians, two dogs, a hamster, and three kids. And the fences in between our yards, they're gates so we can get to each other. It's a wonderful community. We love each other, and we'll love each other forever. But recently, a couple of signs disappeared at night, and that didn't feel so great. 
On any given Sunday afternoon, if you go across the Coolidge Bridge, there's scores of white people waving their flags, Trump flags, Confederate flags, and sometimes it feels like my little black life doesn't matter at all to them. The compounds formed a book group. We're looking at Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. And it's a dystopian novel. It features a young girl, a go-bag, a gun, and the end of the world as we know it. It is not an uplifting Sunday afternoon storytelling moment. But Tara, in her upset, called me one day and said, Deidre, you want to come to a firearm safety training course with me? And I said, yes. I don't know much about guns. There's a Christmas picture of a three-year-old me with my cousin Stephen brandishing silver holsters and guns. And he looks delighted, and I look bewildered. He taught me that guns don't say pow, pow, pow. They say pew, pew, pew. I didn't really watch a lot of TV, had no idea who the Long Ranger and Tonto were. And I packed my lunch and my mask and headed to Franklin County Sportsman Club. It wasn't until I turned down the gravel road that I realized I was headed to the thing that, I, that scared me the most, white people and guns. And as the trees got thicker and the road got darker, the guns got louder. Pew, pew, pew. I couldn't turn around. Tara was in the parking lot waiting for me and I'd paid my $100. So in we went. We ended up in a wall, wood paneled room. Our instructor was a former Marine, a shadow of himself, but all the simplified attitude left to, for days. He asked us to stand up and say why we were there. One guy stood up and said, to protect my property. Another person said, well, I'm here to go hunting with my dad. Tara stood up and said, to get my rifle from my, the homestead of my grandmother. And someone else said, I'm here to protect my Second Amendment rights. I decided not to say anything. It was best that I didn't. And through the course of the, the, course, of the course, I began to think about Philando Castile, who probably learned the same thing that I did hands on the steering wheel, listen to the police officer, and he's dead. Brianna Taylor's boyfriend had a license to carry, and she's dead. And I began to think, maybe this Second Amendment thing doesn't really apply to black people. And as I left with my NRA handbook, I was resolved not to get a gun. And as I drove to the highway, there was a mob of white people at a Trump rally on every corner waving their women for Trump flags, electricians for Trump flags, their Confederate flags, turned on my signal, headed home, and reconsidered. I'm still thinking about buying a gun. Thanks. There are more stories like Deidre Cuffey Gray's in the Our Voices podcast. Find them on Apple Podcasts or at nepm.org. That's it for this edition of And Another Thing. I'm Maya Schwader. And I'm Derek Kennedy. We hope you'll join us again. Mm-hmm.